0: Hi, I'm Steve Shu. I'm Corey Washington. Welcome to Manifold. Apologies for the audio in today's episode, Corey and I are locked down in our homes because of the coronavirus. We're not in our usual studio and so the audio may not be up to uh, its usual standards, but I hope you enjoy the episode. Our guest today is James Oakes, distinguished professor of history and graduate school humanities professor at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, where he teaches history courses on the American Civil War and Reconstruction, Slavery, the Old South, and Abolitionism, along with U.S. and World History. He's the author of six books, including The Ruling Race, History of American Slaveholders, Slavery and Freedom, an Interpretation of the Old South, Freedom National, the Destruction of Slavery in the United States, 1861 through 1865, and The Scorpion Sting, Anti-Slavery and the Coming Civil War. Howard is perhaps best known for his book, The Radical and the Republican, Frederick Douglass Abraham Lincoln and the Triumph of Anti-Slavery Politics. Eric Foner recently described Freedom National as quote, the best account ever written of the complex historical process known as emancipation. Jim won the Lincoln Prize for both The Radical and the Republican and Freedom National. He's also the author of numerous articles and op eds. Most recently, he was among a number of prominent historians to criticize a number of claims in the New York Times 1619 project. He has taught previously at Princeton University and Northwestern University. Welcome to Manifold, Jim. Thank you. Glad to be here. So let's begin to jump into what we were always planning to talk about, which is the 1619 project your response to it, and some of the broader issues that it raises. So I want to start by trying to rephrase the basic premise of the project, and I'd like to get your response to the rephrasing and then uh, ask you a question. So for our listeners who may not know, uh, the 1619 Project, it's an ongoing project by the New York Times, Uh, started in August August 2019, that had the goal of re-examining the legacy of slavery United States. It was time for the 400th anniversary of the arrival of Africans in Virginia. More broadly, it's that it seeks to explore aspects of contemporary life which the authors believe have roots in slavery and its aftermath. Um, the authors of the 1619 project compare that year to 1776. In 1619, 20 to 30 black people who had been uh, stolen from Portugal, a Portuguese ship where they taken against their will from Angola, were brought to Virginia and sold. The project authors write that this was the beginning of slavery in the United States. And point of fact, as numerous historians have pointed out, uh, the people on that ship became indentured servants, uh, not slaves. But it seems to me that there's still a category error here in the sense that 1619 was a year in which people arrived someplace. Nothing politically dramatic happened in that year. Uh, 1776 was when the U.S. declared independence from Britain. So 1619 is more comparable to, say, 1607, the start of Jamestown, or 1620 when uh, the Pilgrims arrived in Plymouth, or even you know, in the 16th century when the um, Spanish arrived. It seems like the... Pli- Sorry, go ahead. Or 1493, when the first African slaves came, or
1: decades before when the first African slaves were brought to Florida, which really are the first ones. To be the United States, or one thousand, six hundred and twenty-six, when they first arrived in New York, or seventeen, whatever, when they first arrived in Louisiana, and you can pick any number of dates in sixteen, nineteen, go, go ahead. I interrupted you. I'm sorry.
0: No, no, th- those those are those are, all right. But suppose you say, look, the politically significant period was the point at which indentured servitude became hereditary slavery for black people brought to the states, and thought it's thought. Correct me if I'm wrong. That happened sometime in the 1660s, at least in Virginia. At that point in time, it kind of hardened. But whatever date you pick, that's whatever you you pick for that. Okay, so I'm trying to make an analogy. There's some point at which you became, slavery got established, right, as a general principle, right? Whatever that date is or that period, what if someone said, that's what you want to compare to 1776? That's the really important date, whatever that is. And how would you respond to that?
1: I think that's actually a factual error. In this case, I think the 1619 Project is correct and more compatible with recent scholarship. That is, uh, <laughs> Show me the indenture contracts for those slaves in 1619. They were brought as slaves, they were purchased as slaves, and in a world in which uh, the English were fully aware of the existence of an Atlantic slave trade that had been in existence since 1493, at least before then actually, because the Portuguese were buying and selling slaves on the African coast even before then. But so the the Atlantic slave trade had been in existence for a century and everyone knew what the slave trade was, and it's not indentured servitude, so they're slaves. But it's not the beginning of slavery. And the, the problem I really have with using sixteen nineteen is that it kind of reverses what one of the most important intellectual historical consequences of the study of slavery over the past fifty years has been which is to kind of deprovincialize provincialize the history of the United States by demonstrating that uh, uh, the, the argument by demonstrating that that the least exceptional thing about the United States is slavery okay? so that the the project opens with an argument for or what made a, what made the United States, everything that made the United States exceptional comes from slavery. When in fact, as I said, slavery is the least exceptional thing in American history because slavery was something that had existed throughout the history of the world. And by the time the, those slaves arrived in Virginia, Dutch were enslaving people and the Portuguese were enslaving people and the Spanish were enslaving people and the French were enslaving people and they were enslaving people in Brazil and in Curaçao and in Barbados and in Hispaniola and Saint-Domingue. And, 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 and so uh, to focus, to make, to make American exceptionalism depend on something that was so unexceptional which is one of the things that makes the history of slavery so, in some ways, tragic, it was completely unexceptional, Um, is a mistake. And and I think uh, there are aspects to the history of slavery in the United States that are different from the history of slavery in other parts of the New World and in earlier forms of slavery. But slavery itself isn't Is not an exceptional institution in the world of the 1600s. So it's one of the problems I have with it, beginning with begins with the the very premise on which it's based, which is, I'd say, somehow stands out this way. And that's to say nothing about how terrible it is. It's a terrible thing. It was horrible. Slavery was. I don't have a problem with calling slavery a barbaric institution. I just have a problem with saying that it's. It's the the source of every single thing that we have in the United
0: States. So so Jim, on on our disagreement, I just want to get clear. Um, So for example, Nell Irvin Painter is one of the people argued that the people arrived were indentured servants. So you think that view is wrong actually, or should not be? I was
1: surprised surprised that she said that. And I think it's a function of the fact that she hasn't worked in the field in the last 20 or 30 years because that view has long since been discredited by most historians who are working. If you read a, a synthesis, like the most popular synthesis of the last generation is probably Ira Berlin's Many Thousands Gone. And and he freely acknowledges that the first Africans brought to Virginia in 1619 were slaves. So that the the, the story isn't how did those people go from being indentured servants to being slaves. The story is how did that system of slavery that was put in place initially become the kind of slave society that that the colonies did become, which is different, right? It, It looked like a typical slave society in the first decades in that some proportion of the slaves managed to get to work there by their own freedom. And so we have histories of blacks who were free and bought slaves of their own, Anthony Johnson stories, things like that. And those avenues of manumission are common in Brazil and Haiti and, and all, all slave societies that are, whose legal systems are based on you know, Roman law, the Siete Partidas, or the, the, the Code Noir. And and it's fairly common for large numbers of slaves to buy their own freedom. And that's what it was like in the very first decade, when we're talking about very small numbers in Virginia. It later takes on the characteristics that are typical of of Anglo-American slave societies in which property rights are far more absolute, and the the church has far less influence, and the colonies are much more self-governing, and the property rights become so absolute that the avenues of self-manumission are closed off. That's what happens. The disappearance of slaves freeing themselves is a function of the shift in the nature of the slave economy, not a shift from indentured servitude to slavery. Again, I'll repeat the question I asked. Show me the contracts. Indentured servants signed contracts. Show me where they are. There's, There's just no evidence that they were signing contracts that said, you know, I'll, I'll be freed after seven years of working for you. It's, just,
0: it's, it's not the case. Corey, could I ask you on behalf of the audience to frame this a little bit? So I think there are probably plenty of people listening to the podcast who are not familiar with the 1619 Project, so maybe you could start there. So I think the 1619 Project was an initiative by, uh, it was in fact initiated by a New York uh, Times reporter. I forgot her name. Um, Nicole Hannah-Jones. Nicole Hannah-Jones, yes. And as I said, I think she wanted to draw attention to the sort of a broader political motivation, I think, behind it, uh, which was to draw attention to the inequities uh, in current American society and to try to trace their historical roots. But then it turned from then into a fairly detailed series of essays about U.S. history and uh, claims about uh, what happened at the founding, uh, the motivation uh, for the U.S. to declare independence from Britain. Uh, the character of, uh, at least the nature of Abraham Lincoln's beliefs about Africans and, you know, their potential future in the U.S. So it, 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 I think it was roughly 100 pages when it was published. There are about uh, 15 essays in it. And it's since expanded, to become a, a high school curriculum. It's becoming a book. You know, what happened after it was published is it was published, I think, uh, great fanfare. And, um, but then people began to look much more closely at it, and it began to attract critics. And Jim was one of the people who wrote into the New York Times with uh, a number of his colleagues, um, Victoria Bynum, James McPherson, Gordon Wood, and Shaul Lentz to address what they thought were weaknesses in the project. Although you you do say that there, there's much of the project you agree with, um, but you then began to focus on certain uh, historical inaccuracies. Is that a fair characterization of? Yes. Yes, that's fair. So it, before we actually started recording, you said that you thought you know you're at a very times letters are not long, and so you don't go into a lot of detail uh, in your criticisms, but you know, in this podcast, our audience is pretty sophisticated, often more than Stephen Ihar. And so I really want to encourage you that we want to go into some detail um, with your critiques of the project and to get a general sense of the state of the debate, because after you wrote in asking for a correction, the Times responded largely saying, we're not going to change anything, but then they did change a few things. So I'd like to at least go through some of your central criticisms in the letter and if you could add to it be important. You know, perhaps the most explosive claim in the project was that it wasn't quite hedged that well that the colonies declared independence uh, in part to preserve slavery, because it looks like it looked like Britain was going to outlaw slavery in the colonies and they wanted to protect it. What's what's right or wrong in those in that claim? All wrong. <laughs> that uh,
1: it's a standard. Uh, there is no evidence that there was a substantial anti-slavery sentiment in Britain at the time of the American Revolution. There's very little or no evidence that the reason the colonists were uh, 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 declared their independence was to protect slavery because there was no real threat from slavery coming from Great Britain. It's a standard. It's a standard understanding among historians of the ab- abolitionist movement in Great Britain that it erupts as a in the 1780s as a consequence of the American Revolution, not, uh, uh, and not sooner than that. There were people before then who were opposed to slavery, and there were Quakers, and there were radicals during the English Civil War who were raising philosophical objections. There had always been philosophical objections. But there's no such thing as an anti-slavery movement. An abolitionist movement in Great Britain until after the American Revolution, in large large measure because of the American Revolution. If you're going to make a claim about the relationship between slavery and the sources of independence, you'd be on firmer ground to say that it was the opposite, that the colonies had, several of the colonies had tried several times to ban the slave trade, which they understood to be the first step in the ultimate abolition of slave trade, and were overruled repeatedly by London, by the British uh, uh, officials, and, and they were not able to stop importing slaves, uh, stop the importation of slaves. The importation of slaves was largely a British enterprise. right? Britain was the largest slave trading nation. In the world at the time, and the, uh, many of the colonies didn't depend heavily on slavery. Wanted to stop it and couldn't. And it was one of the complaints about Great Britain that they had tried to stop this and couldn't. So there's a stronger argument to be made that 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 they objected, or at least the northern colonies uh, 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 complained that part of the reason they objected to. To being ruled by London was because London didn't allow them to stop the importation of slaves. It's not a major source of it. It's one of a piece of complaints about being ruled by London and things like that, by, by the British Empire. But, but it's a stronger argument. The answer the Times came back with was to focus on this event that in late September, in late uh, 1775. Which uh, the British commander in Virginia issues uh, 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 an invitation to slaves to come into British lines, where they would be emancipated if they would uh, uh, if they would fight for the British army. Right? And 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 the problem with using that is that uh, the guy who did it was not anti-slavery. He was trying to suppress the rebellion, and the rebellion was already underway. And that's why he issued the the proclamation. But the, one of the stories that, that the 1619 Project tells is of uh, the first person to die in the American Revolution was Crispus Attucks uh, in Boston, a fugitive slave. And it was five years before Dunmore's proclamation. The, the independence movement is, the rebellion is well underway. And say that one of the primary reasons they, they rebelled is because of something that happened five years into the rebellion makes no logical sense. So the American Revolution, uh, this is the other thing that, that's missing too. There is no such thing in the history of the world as abolition until the last quarter of the 18th century. And the first place, there were, there were one or two other places where we it happened that reminded, but the first significant place that abolition starts is in the new United States. In 1777, Vermont adopts a constitution abolishing slavery. In 1780, Pennsylvania adopts the first abolition statute in the history of the world. And it's followed by Connecticut and then Rhode Island, Massachusetts abolishes slavery in 1780. It's it's the significance of the American Revolution for slavery and what makes America exceptional in that sense is that it's the first place that abolition starts to happen. And without that happening, you didn't have that happen. You didn't have ultimately New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire. You didn't have all those states abolishing slavery, followed by all the Midwestern states abolishing slavery because the federal government kept slavery out of the Northwest Territories. There'd be no north and no south. And now imagine American history without a North that had no slavery and a South had slavery. So it's really the the abolition of slavery that stands out as as the most significant event uh, in the history in in the American Revolution as far as slavery is concerned.
0: Jim, at the time of the revolution, was there any North South split with regards to slavery? No,
1: in 1776, 13 slave colonies declared their independence from Great Britain and became 13 slave states. It's during the revolution, the next year, you start to get the northern states inspired by the revolution largely, but uh, also because slavery was never a major part of their economic systems, they they begin to abolish slavery over and against the objections, the strenuous objections of the slaveholders in those states.
0: Another claim that was uh, pretty important and was criticized, again, was that largely blacks have fought for uh, their freedom alone. Now, are you familiar with Benjamin Lay? I mean, uh, there's a recent biography of him, I think about two years ago, and he was presented as really the first radical abolitionist. He was a Quaker and uh, sort of fascinating character. He was born in Britain, uh, caused enormous trouble there because he objected to many of the hierarchies and uh, features of uh, kind of hypocrisies of religious life, lands in Pennsylvania, and then basically goes on his one-man uh, war against slavery and other things in favor of animal rights, women's rights, et cetera, et cetera. Kind of a fascinating character, but uh, people have claimed him as the first radical abolitionist, uh, pushing for abolition as early as you know, the uh, early 1700s, mid-1700s. But one of the things you did disagree with in the letter also was the claim that African-Americans have largely fought for their freedom on their own. And no, no, no. is there anything you'd like to add to uh, the claims in the letter?
1: Well, again, think of if, if 13 slave states abolish, uh, uh, slave states withdraw from, uni- from uh, 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 declare their independence and then they begin to abolish slavery. What is the role that slaves play in that series of events? They certainly support it to the extent that they can, but they are completely excluded from the political system. What did they have to do with Pennsylvania legislature's decision to abolish slavery in 1780? They did in a sense that that everyone knew they didn't like being slaves. Everyone knew that when they had a chance to accept freedom, they would accept it. They had the experience, not only of Lord Dunmore, but they had the experience of slaves running away all the time. Everyone knew that slaves didn't like being slaves. And to the extent that they understood that, uh, uh, they fought, they they agreed, but it, it was something that always required white allies. It was a, I mean, one of the things that makes the abolitionist movement in the United States so important and so interesting, is, and, and that historians have commented on repeatedly, is that it was a biracial movement for a biracial democracy to create a multiracial democracy. It was a movement of blacks and whites, and it could not have succeeded if it was blacks fighting alone against a more or less united phalanx of whites in opposition to them. At some point, the only way it could work logically is if the black persuaded enough whites to go along with it, but it still requires, even if, even in that very limited sense, it would require allies, right? white allies. So it's, it's, it's part of the larger problem, that, it's part of part, one of the larger analytical problems I have with, with the project is that it eliminates the conflict. That slavery creates within American political and social life. Not a conflict between blacks and whites, but a conflict between people who supported slavery and people who opposed slavery. And the people who opposed slavery are not uniformly black people, they're white. You know, the issue of slavery arose, I'll give you an example. <clears throat> There were about 100 votes in the House of Representatives on slavery between 1790 and 1860. And in 95 out of those, 100 of those, a majority of Northerners in the House of Representatives voted anti-slavery. Anti-slavery commitment of the North is pretty pretty consistent, right? The majority of Northerners don't like slavery. And the, the difference between 1790 in 1860 is that by 1860, the North was much bigger, much stronger, much more economically powerful, had a much larger population because the Northern economy attracted large numbers of people to it and made it more powerful in a representative representative government. So you ended up start with 1776. There are, as I said, 13 slave colonies withdraw and form a nation of 13 slave states. By 1860, uh, the number of slave states has gone from 13 to 15, and the number of free states has gone from zero to 18. And one of the reasons the slave states secede in 1860 is because they can see the handwriting on the wall. They're about to be overwhelmed by a number of free states, the majority of whose voting population don't like slavery and would like to stop it.
0: So I would like to get into the uh... Kind of origins of northern power because many people see it as being part of the success of northern capitalism, which really drove that rise in wealth. But I think there is something that people find very puzzling, and I think it's sort of trying to understand the framers' mindset when you can write something like "all men are created equal" uh, and have you know an inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness when quite a few of them are slaveholders and. You know, I think the authors of uh, 1619 Project describe this um, as the founders lying, but it's it's more and more complex because if you think it's true that you know everyone has a right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, and all men are created equal, that's not a lie. So, how are people to think about these characters who could write these you know words at the same time? At least some of them own slaves.
1: Think about the way Abraham Lincoln thought about it. It's not a description of reality, it's an ideal that's set up toward which you aspire. He it knows that it's not the way people actually live at any given time. It's what you aspire to build as a nation. And, and I think even even someone like Thomas Jefferson who's, uh, who wrote it and is in many ways a hypocrite for having write, written it, I suppose, that he did believe that in the long run you know nothing is so clearly written in the book of fate than that these people must be free right that he depended on those people for his life for his livelihood yes that he never was able to extricate himself from that system that's correct you know uh, was he a hypocrite for that reason fine you know if you're interested in hypocrisy well you know hypocrites are a dime a dozen if you have no ideals. What if they had said, uh, all men are not created equal, some are born to be high and mighty and others to be low and despicable, some are born slaves and some are born free. Well, we have a very, very different nation, but they wouldn't be hypocrites. <laughs> At least they wouldn't be hypocrites, right? So you set this up as a standard and we don't live by that, we don't, we don't, we don't have a nation that lives by that standard today and uh, uh, we have a nation that aspires theoretically to that thing, right? Is,
0: is there a third possibility in which the word all was not meant to include non Europeans?
1: Well, that's what it eventually became a, a debate about. Uh, no, I wouldn't say, yes, by the 1850s, that is the debate that Abraham Lincoln is having with. Stephen Douglas, who's not a slaveholder, he's a northerner, he's a chief rival in the 1858 debate, and it was precisely that issue that you raised, Steve. Uh, uh. Douglas's position was that the Declaration of Independence meant all white men are created equal, right? It did not mean all, all blacks and whites are created equal, and Lincoln's position was, no, I'm sorry, it didn't say that, they didn't mean that, they meant all men are created equal, and that's what we have to start to appear. So it was a debate over what it meant. But I don't think at the time, I don't think Jefferson meant only white people. I think he, the problem he had is that he, he thought black people were inferior, uh, not that they weren't entitled to the right of life, liberty, and property, but that since they were inferior to white people, he couldn't imagine freeing them and letting them live in the United States. So he was. Trapped by his own racial logics, you know, he, he's committed to the idea that all men, inferior or not, are entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But his racial prejudices prevented him from, you know, uh, acting on them. You can believe that all men are entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness or property, and still not think that. Blacks and whites should be allowed to get married. That blacks should be allowed to serve on juries. That blacks should be allowed to vote. Things like that. So, because those are not natural rights; those are civil rights that are granted by states and nations and things like that. So, so you could believe in fundamental human equality and not
0: believe in uh, uh, full racial equality. So, Jim, this is a big part of. Uh, well, this claim is made a number of times in your book, *The Radical and the Republican*, that. Abraham Lincoln did believe that the Declaration of Independence was a universal document. My perhaps uninformed impression was he's wearing rose-colored glasses, that he's imposing perhaps his own view of the Declaration on the Founders. Is there clear evidence that they believed that this was a universal proclamation or that he thinks it should have been taken that way? Some did and Some didn't. I think, as I said, I think Thomas Jefferson actually did believe that. Why? Mm-hmm. Why do you believe that?
1: Because he's- Says it. He says, but like the quote I gave, is nothing is more clearly written in the book of fate than that these people must be free. He, when he was younger, he would introduce he introduced gradual abolition laws into the Virginia Assembly and things like that, and they failed. He he advocated the Northwest Ordinance, which would ban slavery from the from the Northwest Territory and produced five free states. So there's enough evidence that even he, and he's hardly the most Radical on that issue, but I think if you go further north and you look at, you know, the, the if you read read the the first paragraph of the 1780 Pennsylvania abolition statute, right? This is the first I've mentioned earlier, the first statute ever in the history of the world to abolish slavery, at some point, right? And the the entire first paragraph is an attack on the notion of racial inequality. It's or it's, it's, it's an attack on people who are claiming blacks were not equal to whites. It gave that statute gave slaves slaves the the rights of due process the, 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 that that, uh, that white servants had. You know, that, I think there's plenty of evidence that plenty of people did actually believe it. And there's a new book out just by by Paul Polgar that says that that the goal of the first abolition movement that produced these free states in the north was to incorporate the emancipated slaves into the United States as full equal citizens. And he's got abundant, abundant evidence for it. So those founders certainly did believe that the Declaration of Independence meant it, meant what it said, that
0: fundamental human
1: equality. And others in South Carolina, you'd be hard pressed to find so many who would
0: say that. They're all founders. But... I think it's from your interview with the World Socialist website. You talk about there being, I guess, initial optimism after the revolution or expectation that slavery would eventually go away, and that this, um, this optimism really faded over the two decades after the revolution. What was going on during that period that you think stalled the movement that they all thought was coming?
1: Cotton. Cotton and, and I suppose Haiti as well scared them, but, but it was cotton. The tobacco, the the American Revolution destroyed the indigo economy uh, uh, in in South Carolina and Georgia. The the tobacco economy had been foundering. And uh, one of the reasons you get so many Virginians uh, willing to sign off on vague, highfalutin statements about fundamental human equality and the end of slavery is because the tobacco economy was foundering. And they were all in debt and they thought slavery was dying. It looked to them like slavery was dying, that they, they were switching over. So it's, you don't get, uh, you, you could there's no cotton. There's virtually no commercially produced cotton in the United States until around 1785. Right? Nobody can even, they can only imagine, and it can't be grown in any part of the interior of the South. Right? They could, they could only grow Sea Island cotton on the coastline because the inland, inland cotton that became so famous was, had too many seeds in it. And they they didn't have a gin until the 1790s that could make that kind of cotton commercially viable. And once they had it, uh, uh, it boomed. And once it boomed, well, it gave slavery a new lease on life that it hadn't had. But no one in 1776, much less 1787 could have imagined. Nobody would think they could have imagined it. They had every reason to think it was. They had good reason to think it was dying. They looked at the. They looked at those states that were abolishing slavery one by one. They looked at the state of the economy, uh, uh, of the tobacco economy, and they they had, they had. it was a reasonably good bet, the slavery was going to disappear. And the problem was then, what are we going to do with all these free black people?
0: In your you know, so, I guess I want to get in a little bit about the economics difference because it sounds like cotton both saved the South. You know, it saved the Southern economy to some extent, but there are forces also which accelerated growth in Northern economy far beyond what was happening in the South. What were those forces? Uh, The 1619 Project argues that the economic drive was largely slavery, but if there's something very different in the North, it had to be another factor basically which accounted for Northern growth. Um, Do we know anything about the growth rates of the economy uh, at that stage in both regions? Yeah, pretty good. So we have this paradox where, uh, 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 on the one hand, the cotton economy is
1: growing by leaps and bounds. On the other hand, the Northern economy is growing by bigger leaps and bigger bounds, right? And, and they're growing in very different ways. That is one way to say it is that the, the slave economy grew, but the Northern economy developed, right? And, and the claim being made, this, this was actually my first objection. So the 1619 Project is the essay by Matthew Desmond, which summarizes an interpretation of the relationship between slavery and capitalism that I find uh, uh, not supported by the evidence. So the wealth of the North is fueled by slavery. Slavery creates enormous sources of wealth, and they, they make a logical leap from the fact that the slaveholders were rich to the claim that that's why all of Northern wealth and all of American wealth. Uh, all American economic Development group. but but uh, again, step back the way i I did earlier in this discussion and look at the larger history of Atlantic slavery and ask yourself why the largest slave economies uh, in Brazil, and Cuba in in Haiti, uh, all ended up impoverished, and why the countries that were most heavily involved in the slave trade, Portugal, uh, Spain and France did not develop as a result of their their uh, slave colonies. Right? If slavery is the source of capitalist development, then why didn't those most heavily involved in slavery develop off of slavery? They didn't. The countries that developed were the countries like England and 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 the, and the later the North, in large part. Uh, uh, and it was their development that I think in large part drove the emergence of new world slavery. That is, the countries that had be started to be developed in a capitalist way, they had free labor and they had the, the free laborers were working for wages and they became consumers and they the, they were rationalizing agriculture in the countryside and, and throwing off workers who were moving to the cities. And, you know, England in 1700 has 10 times as many as as many cities as the entire rest of Europe has at that point. So they have a large consumer base. The same thing is happening in the North uh, uh, during, uh, even before the revolution. And it's that transformation of that economy into a a consumer-based economy in which the consumers were buying, what were they buying? They were buying sugar, they were buying cocoa, they were buying coffee, and ultimately they were buying cotton, right? And it's the, it's the, economic development of the the northwestern part of Europe and the northern United States that is propelling the development of the slave economy, right? The lines of dependency go the opposite of what the 1619 Project would have you believe. In that sense, capitalism is causing the rise of slavery, not slavery that's causing the rise of capitalism. You can make a different claim for the, the specific ways in which the profits of slavery did or did not help the Industrial Revolution, but the Industrial Revolution in the North is a, is a broad-based phenomenon in which the, the cotton textile mills of, of uh, in Slater's mills and the Lowell mills are actually outliers. You know, the, the basis of industrialization in the North is in localities that are making clocks and silverware and plates and hats. And, and and all sorts of things that are being built and iron and you know the the, the industrial revolution is a broad-based phenomenon in which those those cotton textile mills are, are unusual and they're not the major part of the the process of industrialization and and in that sense i would say along with uh gavin wright who is i think the best economic historian of slavery uh, alive um It was the abolition of slavery in the North that, not slavery, but it's abolition that set the North off on a course of economic development very different from what the South. Because free laborers who become wage laborers or, or keep the fruits of their own labor and produce and become commercial farmers and who become consumers on their own, and they develop a relationship between the city and the countryside, a dynamic relationship between city and the countryside in the North that is not happening in the South. And it's, and it's the history of those economies becoming increasingly independent of the South that makes it possible for the North to go to war and not worry about the destruction of slavery. You know, they want, what they wanted from the South was cotton. And they didn't care whether it came from slaves or indentured servants or free laborers. All things considered, they preferred that it came from free laborers who were earning wages. And given their ideological orientation, they were convinced that 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 if you emancipated the slaves, because slaves don't work hard they have no incentive to work hard there are no prospects of getting ahead by being slaves if you switch to a system of free labor the slaves will work the free people will work twice as hard and cotton will flow more abundantly than ever so if they're interested in cotton they would be more likely to say we'll get we'll we'll, we'll be better off with free laborers than slave laborers so you know they they watch their economies flourish they watch their economies suck in Millions and millions and millions of immigrants, right? Hundreds of thousands of white Southerners are pouring out of the South into the Midwest, like that, And, and they come to the conclusion that an economy based on free labor is more dynamic, more equitable, more progressive than an economy based on slave labor. So there's every reason for them to prefer a free labor economy to a slave labor economy. Why anyone would think that they wouldn't care about slavery and not think that free labor was superior is odd to me. The same logic, I used to have trouble teaching my students to sort of not ask questions like why, how could the slaveholders do what they did? You know, Because they grew up and just imagine slavery is a normal part of human history. It's existed for tens of thousands of years. It's, there's every major society. Greeks had slaves, Egyptians had slaves, Romans had slaves, the African societies. One of the reasons Africa was so vulnerable to the demand for slaves from the New World was because those were slave societies too, and they just began capturing more slaves and selling them, right? so. So it's normal to grow up in slavery. It's not normal to grow up in anti-slavery societies, but what happens in the United States by 1860 is several generations of people who have grown up in an extraordinarily prosperous society coming to the conclusion that it's a much better way to organize things, you know, so,
0: and, and it works. You know, I ask the same question to people whenever they look at any, what we look upon is any historical Atrocity or things like that, right? The number of people who deviate from the behavior of the majority is always extremely tiny. The number of Germans who radically and uh, rebelled, uh, uh, you know, right. during World War II was extremely small. Um, and so, right. it's, it's yeah, right. you can't expect that you'd be unique in some sense. Right. You know, it. You know, we'll link to your um, your article about uh, capitalism slavery, and slavery in the Civil War because, you know, there there was a very active debate as to what what was driving, you know. Did What would drove things? Did slavery help make capitalism possible, providing raw materials? Or did you know, the industrial revolution at least provide the demand for, for cotton? In the 1619 product, it seems that there's an issue that I find elsewhere in discussions of capitalism, which is it's incredibly vague. It's what capitalism is. And so you know, it just seemed like in the 1619 author's view, capitalism was any sort of regimented system of production. Yeah, right for for a long distance trip for exactly yeah and i mean i just want to get your sense you know is is that something that you find it seems like a problem of many debates about capitalism which is no one actually says what it is it often tends to be whatever it is that the author doesn't like or it seems particularly heartless i mean i'm being a little uncharitable that way but it's a little a sort of a kind of regimented system that doesn't treat labor very well
1: Okay. But uh, that's the problem all through the project, and it's a problem that's a reflection of to some extent of what the historians have been doing, and it's it's a series of logical illusions in which you see uh, analogs being made. To sort of, so, uh, so there's an example in, in Anna Jones' uh, initial essay. She says, her grandfather was uh, 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 grew, was grew grew up on a plantation in Greenwood, Mississippi, where they stooped in the hot sun and picked cotton just as their enslaved ancestors had done recently. Well, no, the likelihood is that he didn't pick cotton just as his enslaved ancestors did. He likely produced cotton as a sharecropper who had his own plot of ground and worked with his family, not under the direct supervision of, of an overseer and was able, as a majority of sharecroppers were gradually able to do, save up enough money to buy his own plot of land which is what you see in those uh, in, in, the, in the biographies of the in, the in the histories and genealogies of the law students who uh, profiled at the end of the project. They, their ancestors were landowners who managed to buy land and, and the post in the postbellum South, right? and that that's one of the logical illusions is uh, 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 convict laborers after the Civil War are treated cruelly. Slaves were treated cruelly. Therefore, the convict lease system is slavery by another name. But slavery isn't just about so slavery allows you to treat people cruelly. But lots of systems allow you to treat people cruelly, and 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 it's not the cruelty of slavery that defines what a convict lease system is. In some ways, it's more cruel than slavery for the simple reason that the the, the planter leasing a convict had no economic investment. In this, in that convict's well-being, right? the, it was well known that the all slaveholders understood that the greatest source of their wealth was the slaves themselves, as as valuable property, as saleable property. Right? So all discussions of the best way to manage a plantation described described the good crop as one that's good taking into consider everything, including the fences, the barns, the animals, the, the size of the cotton crops, the size of the corn crops, so the slaves could be fed, and the well-being of the slaves. You want the number of slaves increasing year after year after year because you have a, a commercial investment in the, in the slaves as saleable property. That that incentive is gone when someone is leasing convicts, right? And so they there's one of the essays tells this horrendous story of a planter in Louisiana in the late 19th century who leased 25 slaves and in a year, of uh, free blacks, I'm sorry, they're not slaves, leased 25 prisoners and, tw- and in a year, 12 of them were dead, right? Well, slaveholders were not in the business of killing off their slaves. That's not what slavery is. They're, the convicts' children aren't slaves. The convict is not a slave for life. It's not perpetual. It's not. It's not slavery. It's horrible. It's terrible. But it's not slavery. But the the whole project, in order to make these these claims for the continuous treatment of blacks from slavery to the present, there are a series of these definitional, you know, confusions that are required in order to make this argument for uh, for continuity. So. Uh, and, and it happens all the time through that project, because the commitment the political commitment which is just saying everything we are right now, including rush hour traffic, comes from slavery right? and that tendentiousness imposes requirements on the essays and, uh, and uh, uh, that create all sorts of logical flaws and Equations of two different kinds of systems with uh, different kinds of systems of oppression that 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 are anti-historical in the sense that the the material conditions that give rise to a convict lease system are fundamentally different in the late 19th century and early 20th century than the material conditions under slavery and the conditions that create mass incarceration that started to create mass incarceration in the last 20 or 30 years and things that caused that don't have very much to do with slavery. They have virtually nothing to do with slavery. They have to do with the conditions in the United States in the political history of the United States in the 1970s and 80s and 90s that could produce these changes of laws and it created an enormous increase in incarceration rates in which the majority of those incarcerated are white, not black. So uh, 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 it's, it's, it's that push to make everything we are come from slavery that distorts that distorts that project for me and creates a series of, as I said, logical leaps, analytical confusions, definitional failures. It's, it's it's a Desmond essay on slavery and capitalism. It's based on a body of literature that is that is widely criticized for precisely the reason you raised. They won't they're gonna kind of write about capitalism, but they're not gonna say what capitalism is, right? And you really can't do that. If you, I'm not saying you have to have one particular definition of capitalism. There are lots of them out there. And each of them has well understood strengths and well understood weaknesses. But you can't say you're writing about the relationship between capitalism and slavery and not say we're capitalism. And not say you are slavery. Is. Well, they do know that slavery is the chattel principle, but the chattel principle isn't, you know, the uh, convict lease isn't based on the chattel principle. There's no
0: slave auction houses left. You know, I had a I have a friend um, who's an intellectual historian, and we had him on the show a little while ago. And at some point in time, we were arguing about, you know, he was making certain broad political generalizations, and I'm like, well, you know, basically about alliance between sort of left wing politics and ethnic groups. And I'm like, well, you know, and, I'm saying. Uh, Andrew, it was Andrew Hartman. I'm like, Andrew, you know, this doesn't really fit picture my grandparents who were both black and kept, held what would sound like pretty traditional conservative positions we you to ask. They might look in various respects like Republican. And his response was, you know, some he says, some historians are lumpers, some are splitters. He says, I'm basically a lumper. And so you've got to make certain kind of generalizations. But what, what sort of surprised me as I've dug into this a little bit is even if you don't, you know, get into very, very fine great historical arguments. A lot of what's taught uh, to people is sort of inaccurate. I'm going to give you kind of a personal example of this, at least that I've learned about. I had just a detailed discussion with my father and uncle uh, about family history this past week and I was asking about our family history in Mississippi. Um, my dad's family is from West Point, Mississippi, which is in the uh, you know, the uh, northern uh, part of the state. It's uh, you know close to the Alabama border and my image of course from what i studied in school was that my ancestors were probably sharecroppers because that's what i assumed uh, most blacks were and it turned out that they weren't they never were they had small plots of land and it's not quite clear how they had the most my guess is it looks like my my great great grandfather appears to be half irish perhaps the son of a slaveholder and uh, a enslaved woman but since that you know since his all of his descendants had their own plots of land, and his description of their life, uh, you know, they were children back then, so they spent time with their grandmother, who was either, you know, in fact, their step grandmother. Uh, their their grandmother turns out to be partly Native American, um, which is something that's often not quite discussed so explicitly. It was the racial lines weren't quite as hard and fast. Um, she was born just after slavery, probably, and. They lived in a community in which whites really were not present. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get what was the sense of interaction with white people, and they said, we really didn't. You'd go into town once a week to buy some general store, but for the most part, you just lived in this sort of small village. And it these, the image of kind of this constant encounter with this sort of oppressive force wasn't there. It may be worse because it was fully separate, but it was just a, different, a society in which, you know, they said, we ran into white people when we went to the theater. And they had to sit in the balcony, but that was the extent of it. It was just a very different picture than I'd had from my uh, my education, and it wasn't such a clean picture. So maybe it didn't get taught because it didn't fit under lower-scale theory. But I began asking various questions, such as you know, where in the they seemed like I used the term middle class. My uncle made it very clear they were not middle class. He said they're stable, but I was trying to figure out where in the economic distribution they fell among blacks. Were they exceptional or not? He said it was probably very hard to know, but it seemed like it was not an uncommon system in that area to be. Uh, to have a certain amount of labor, so it was a, again a complicated picture, similar to a kind of picture you paint in your description of the ruling uh, the ruling race, right? Which is that most slaveholders were not large plantation owners. It seems like that's part of what's being missed in a lot of this discussion. History is extremely diverse, and the plantation system was, in fact, not the norm for uh, at least whites. For slaveholders, it wasn't the norm. Right. Yeah, and it wasn't clear it was, to
1: me it was- It took to be the norm for slaves. Yes. Like the majority yes. of slaves live in plantations, but the majority of slaveholders are not planters.
0: But afterwards, it was unclear to me whether sharecropping was the norm for Blacks or whether this a small landholder. Uh, do we know actually whether the majority of Blacks were sharecroppers or not? In the early
1: years, virtually all of them would have to be sharecroppers because there was no access to land. The point- uh, the point that I was making when I suggested you look at those biographies uh, is that over time, the, uh, the, the Black population and the, the farm population in the South increasingly owned its own land. And that's the goal in an agricultural society, to get your own land. And uh, uh, again, one of the logical confusions in the project is uh, the, the piece on the, on the racial wealth gap, for example talks about the, the pattern of black dispossession, right? But it's hard, it's hard to know what that means when you're talking about a population of 4 million people who come out of slavery possessing nothing. When the, the history of possession among those people from from the moment they're emancipated till the early 20th century is the gradual possession of land, right? And, and this happens, and it happens, it leaps in particular in the very years that uh, disfranchisement is happening, when lynching peaks, when when the worst forms of racial oppression, the, the nadir of black life after the Civil War, as it's, as it's referred to, happens, at the same time that blacks in the South are increasingly buying and and getting hold of their own pieces of land, right? Now, an argument has been made, and it, it, it's, it's plausible that those two things are actually connected in the sense that but there's actually a a reference to it in the 1619 Project. What causes the white backlash in the 1890s and early 1900s is not the failure of blacks, but the success of blacks. So the two things don't go hand in hand. You can't say uh, black dispossession goes hand in hand with the rise of racial discrimination and disfranchisement because in fact, the opposite seems to be happening. Black possession seems to be going hand in hand. With it. So it's it's one of those logical flaws in the in the argument that equates that confuses economic patterns with with these patterns of racial discrimination that go you know, uh, you know there's all sorts of things like that 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 you know even even the better essays uh, I, I think that essay on the uh, on the Enslaving um, capitalism is the one that upset me the most because I know the most about that, and it's so riddled with factual errors that uh, uh, it's the reason I agreed to do the interview with the World Socialist Website. Um, but take a, a, a relatively good essay by the one by Jamel Bowie, who's a uh, 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 he's he's not a historian, he's a he's a journalist, and it's about the origins of the anti-democratic onslaught that we're witnessing right now: the attempts to Know, voter suppression and gerrymandering and things like that. These have a very long history. And he, he dates that to, he traces that to John C. Calhoun's repudiation of democracy in defense of slavery. Well, you know, he, John C. Calhoun is not the first anti-democrat in American history and his nemesis in the nullification crisis where John C. Calhoun justifies South Carolina's to nullify a federal government, a federal tariff on anti-democratic grounds, his nemesis is Andrew Jackson, who is a slave-holding planter, and and the representative of a new kind of democracy in which there is universal white men who suffered. So the story isn't so It's it's another example of attempting to shoehorn all the things that are terrible right now, that we all agree, probably agree are terrible into the history of slavery when, and and, you know, what's frustrating for me about this is you know enough of my work. (laughs) I have devoted my scholarly life 40, 50 years now to studying the history of slavery and making sure we all understand how important the history of slavery and racial ideology has been to American history. The very first research paper I ever did as a first year graduate student at Berkeley was uh, a, a study of the uh, New Orleans race fight of 1866 in which a black convention needing to demand equal rights was attacked by a group of whites in there and, and the blacks were slaughtered on the streets of New Orleans. Right? I've been studying this stuff for my entire life. And so the frustrating thing about the 1619 Project is is that it's as though people like me didn't exist. And there hasn't been a whole lot of this kind of thing, but we're more. But we want to get the facts right. I mean, we, want, we want it to be logical, and we and we're historians. We want to understand that racism. You shouldn't be talking about racism as something built into the DNA of the United States, because that suggests an unchanging, timeless, unhistorical understanding of what racial ideology is all about. When you should be asking questions like, what are the particular historical conditions in which you're likely to get an upsurge of racism and what are the conditions that explain to us why in the immediate aftermath of the American Revolution there was anti-racism was the dominant uh, force in northern life and why during the middle of the 19th century suddenly there was a anti-racism and then in the late 19th century an upsurge of racism right so the you can't just say there was this unchanging thing called racism, because racism exists in very specific historical contexts and gives rise to very different kinds of problems, political and social and economic problems. And, and it's used in the 1619 Project because of this determination to trace everything back to slavery. It's used to, to in, an, in, in a way that I say it's not just ahistorical, it's anti-historical. It's to show that nothing changes. And, and, and to the to the to the point where you have these reductio ad absurdum to say that traffic jams in Atlanta come from slavery is is crazy. Not even the essay from which she drew that observation in her introduction to the 1619 project. Not even the essay, which is by Kevin Cruz, a good historian at Princeton, says that. The essay she's drawing that conclusion from says exactly the opposite. That under slavery. The incentive for whites was to keep blacks close, but that with emancipation, an entirely different political uh, 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 political calculus emerged in which keeping blacks and whites separated from one another took charge and you started to get patterns of racial uh, segregation in cities and, 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 and that the, the use of the interstate highway to block off separate uh, blacks from whites in cities creates these Odd uh, configurations of highways that are jammed up like that, things like that. So it's 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 exactly the, the essay actually ends up saying exactly the opposite of what she says. The essay
0: says. You know, it, I also wonder often wonder whether this, this might just be a, you know, Stephen have have had the long discussion about culture wars, and to some extent they may be a luxury of for people for whom life is not all that difficult to worry about certain kinds of things. But I often wonder whether this is a generational phenomenon. You know. I talked to my father. My father says quite openly, he's like, look, I, I grew up in apartheid. My dad's now a retired professor at University of Massachusetts, living in Amherst, Massachusetts. And he's like, look, it's just, it's utterly astonishing the changes that happened since he was a kid. You know, family born in, he was born in West Point, Mississippi, moved to East St. Louis, time when East St. Louis was doing pretty well, but later things went bad, but ended up, you know, at Rutgers, then at UMass. He couldn't really imagine, right, the kind of, change that happened. But even if you go back, right, even if you go back to Mississippi at that time, and this is something I learned in this conversation with them, which is, um, and then I think there's a certain picture of white-black relations as being really like the, the wall between them. My grandfather, who was born in 1915, had a white friend. And in the early, when they were about 15 years old, they started a business together. And they were, uh, they bought a cow and they slaughtered it. And it turned out that my grandfather had pretty good skills at slaughtering. So they carved the cow up and they sold it. They basically took a, a kind of wheelbarrow, allowance, or wheelbarrow, something large around, sold the meat and bought another cow. And they built this thing into a pretty significant business. So it, it was, I was just sort of surprised because I didn't expect this type of relationship to exist. Um, at some point around early 30s, my grandfather was you know, 20 or so, um, the business was booming. But he realized he actually couldn't be a full partner in this business. It just wasn't in the cards uh, in West Point Mississippi at that time so you know and, but the guy said look but you always have a job you know you may not be partner but you always have a job my grandfather eventually uh, left the area but this business which was uh, grew up to what's called Brian Foods was eventually bought by Sarah Lee uh, in the late 60s it was one of the largest uh, meat packers uh, in the country in the region at the time but it, it it kind of showed a complexity to relations which were just unheard of and it's, it's quite clear that Life got better over time for Black people, but even at the time, there were these really complex interactions. My father describes you know, his grandmother when he'd go back for the summer from East St. Louis to West Point, Mississippi. His grandmother would take them around, and this was probably the mid '40s. Um, at some point, he describes being in town and these young white kids inviting him to play baseball with them, and he starts playing with them, and she comes out of the store basically grabs him by the collar and rips him away. It's like, you know, this is not something you should be doing. Um, but it's her basically imposing that line rather than the kids at that time, right? Again, it, uh, you know, things weren't great back then, but it was a very different picture and much more complicated picture of actual human relations. And I really wonder if people who are in their 80s would have the same view that things have not changed, because I don't think they do. And so I wonder whether you've sensed this is a generational gap uh, in people, where they just, they're just not aware.
1: I don't think it's. Generational, so much as it's, uh, I, I, I tend to see that kind of uh, argument about nothing's changed as as most prominent in sort of the, what a black political scientist named Adolf Reed calls the black professional managerial class. It's people like Anna Nicole Jones, who working as you know a very well-paid reporter for the most prestigious newspaper in the world, saying nothing's changed. I've heard tenured professors at the University of Chicago, uh, uh, an African-American professor ask whether or not, uh, I don't think we've ever been emancipated, right? But a tenured professor at the University of Chicago making a statement like that, it, you, it, it can only be rhetorical, right? It can only, it can't, you, you can't be serious. Unless you're, you know, uh, uh, there's what I, what 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 a Marxist would call idealism here, right? It's it's taking an idea, white supremacy or racism or whatever, and tracing it through time and seeing the same basic idea, and and with no sense that there are underlying conditions that change, political conditions that change, that change the valence of that, that change the meaning of that, that make it. Salient in one context and not in another context, and you could do that with any idea that persists. You could say that everything that's terrible about the United States—and there's lots of things that I think are terrible right now about the United States—all goes back to the fact that the United States is basically a Christian country. And I can finger Christians at every step along the way, defending slavery, defending this, defending inequality, you know, defending all sorts of terrible things. And and it's the same idea right now of you know fundamentalist protestants you know saying we're going to have church services on sunday despite the coronavirus or something like that you can you can trace an unbroken mind if you want to ideas because ideas are easier to do it that way you know it's the material conditions of life that are changing dramatically and and affecting different people in different ways but but it's that it's that when you start saying that something like an idea is built into the DNA of the United States and that becomes your, your through line, you've erased historical change uh, from, from a, for a particular purpose, you know, to make, it, make certain claims in contemporary politics. And that's most, most attractive as an idea, I think. Uh, uh, there is no such thing as, uh, this is another thing that my friend Reed. So there is no such thing as the black community, right? There, I say that too, actually.
0: Different. I say that too all the time. There, there is no such thing, right? There, there are, and that, that what the
1: black professional managerial class talks right now isn't necessarily what working class blacks talk and need. Like that, and I think what we're getting in the 1619 project is a distillation of a certain so. So look at look for example the way they deal with the 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 well known fact of the rising economic inequality of the last generation. Right, but if everybody knows that this has happened. Everybody can think of the various reasons why this has happened, but they really aren't focused on why that has happened. They are focused on one particular aspect of it, which is the disparity between whites and blacks, which is not explaining why the the, race, the, the wealth gap has happened, the financialization of the, of the economy, the shift to jobs overseas, all the various things that have real meaningful effects on the lives of working people who are disproportionately black, but by but focusing on disparity rather than the source of the inequality itself, you're 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 focusing on the idea of racial inequality uh, and racial difference that, that you can trace through line through without actually having to deal with the, the the actual question of what is causing this to happen right now why did this happen over the last 10 and things like that it's it's and that's you know that is again something i associate with a particular class of people not with, the, not with any uniform black community or uniform white community
0: you know it's funny when people talk about the black or the white communities because it's obviously uh, a kind of ridiculous notion on its face—a community consisting of you know tens to millions of people. Um, but it seems to be uh, it, look—it's it's easy for ideological generalizations to be made on on that basis. Let's just draw back. So I know we've taken a lot of your time. Let's step back and begin to try to look at the significance of this debate. Now, what I'd like to understand is what do you think the significance. Is of the debate over the 1619 project. You know, is this something, why should this be of interest to non historians and non academics? What's at stake here fundamentally?
1: I would, uh, let me get, uh, start with the specific. The thing I liked about Jamel Bowie's essay on the struggle over democracy and, and anti democracy is because he frames it as a conflict that has existed in, in various ways over time. And you don't have to, located solely in the defense of slavery but um, but if you frame these issues as persistent conflicts that erupt in different ways in different times and have different consequences that uh, then you're closer to uh, to being historically grounded and specific and and then you can explain things much better and why in one set of conditions does does uh, the, do the anti-racists win, and why in another set of conditions that the to win? I mean that's a little simplistic too, but but at least it, at least it stops you from talking about you know entire groups of people who have who are monoliths, right? Uh, when all the evidence suggests that, I mean look at look at what happened in the South Carolina primary, right? It's clear from the from the outcome of that vote that Blacks in South Carolina, like Whites in South Carolina, are much more conservative than, than Blacks and Whites in Detroit. Right? They, and, and, and so uh, there is, you know, and, and, and you cannot assume that all Blacks are going to vote one way and, all, all, and think one way. And, you know, one of the points that, that uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones makes, and it's a good point, is that African-Americans are, are more likely than any other group framed it that way to support uh, Medicare for all or universal health care. But in South Carolina, Jim Clyburn famously said you don't get nothing, nothing comes free right and he, he objected strenuously to the idea of Medicare for all in his endorsement of Biden over Sanders, right So uh, you know, <laughs> you're not going to find uniformity and, and you can't wish it into existence by talking about the whites are this and blacks are this, when all throughout US history, there have been these conflicts over, over democracy, over economic inequality, over racial inequality, like that. So I just would, uh, if you're gonna start from a premise that's different from the way this one is, start from the premise that, that things are always contested, that these, these ideas are never stable and they're, they're never consensual.
0: And I guess I'd add that people are variable and that even people who have the same skin color are quite variable. It's sort of an obvious point, but uh, you spend time in any region of the country, you're going to get very different attitudes on, you know, whether it's any contentious issue of the day.
1: Right. And young people are more in favor, of young, including young blacks, are much more in favor of Sanders than older people. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's a generational divide. It's, it's just... You have to be careful about and, and with your historical specifics. Right? You can make generalizations, and you have to make generalizations, but they have to be. This is this is the. They have to be grounded in facts, right? So when you asked me in, in the email, you sent about the, uh, the the Atlantic piece, in which you said this is about interpretation, not facts. Well, I suppose in a sense he's right, except that you you interpret facts. And you can, if your facts are wrong, you can't have a, a, a reasonable interpretation except by accident, you
0: know, if, you, if your facts are all wrong. I think the Atlantic piece was, yeah, going, I think they're basically trying to, they didn't look, I saw it as kind of a political response to the conflict, right? They didn't want to take a side. They don't want to take your side because uh, it you know, might seem politically inappropriate. So they wanted to essentially elide the issue. But there's, if it's not facts, it's just spin. It seems like it's not just spin, right? There are actually real questions as to what led, motivate uh, the colonies to declare independence. Uh, what, what, what were Lincoln's actual views about black people? I mean, it's often hard to get those points, but I think, I guess what's probably fascinated me with this project is the political angles of the people who've commented on it, and you, know, you talk about your interview with the World Socialist website, which was, was really, it's one of the best interviews I've seen in a long time. Very thorough, very, very detailed. Um, but I could see quite easily why why they'd be critical, right? You might think at first that they would not be critical given their orientation, but you know they're very, very opposed to anything that's going to distract from the role of class in American society and as a historical force. And this project essentially push class aside in place of race. And so it was sort of spreading on their territory. But I think they they run they run a slight risk, right, just focusing exclusively on class and not race, of missing a whole other dimension. Because it seems to be quite obvious that both are factors. And that trying to have a theory which ex- exclusively focuses on one is going to encourage this type of ahistorical character. Um, so anyway, but you got the the Atlantic, you got people on like the World Socialist website, Conservatives like the National Review all taking a really strong interest in this topic. At least my sense was this was, in some sense, a good thing. It's rare you get active intellectual debate in many publications in America, and I just want to get your reaction and conclude as a conclusion on that point, which is whatever my sense is for whatever disagreement was raised, whatever factual inaccuracies they were, it spurred intellectual debate of a kind that is not often. Does not often happen in mainstream publications in the U.S.
1: Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, I think it's it's been uh, more effective at spurring debate in mainstream publications, or even like the worldwide social website. When when that interview first came out, Eric Foner, who's a friend of mine, uh, a prominent historian. Uh, uh, read it. Somebody sent it to him, and he said, "It's too bad it appeared in the World Wide Sources website. Nobody's going to read it, right?" <laughs> and it, it went viral. I right? sent all. I sent all my friends. <laughs> right. So, uh, but but the the frustrating thing, the sad thing for me is that it has not produced that kind of debate among historians. It's entirely a public debate, and it's a good debate, as you say. It's a necessary debate. I I I would. I would, I would not say that the the Trotskyist website. I'm not sure what a Trotskyist is, by the way. I, I had never heard of the word website, but but where I don't think the issue for them is simply class because they've always been ready to see the relationship between race and class. I think what they're concerned about is the erasure of revolution,
0: right?
1: that, that that they believe change happens often and necessarily through revolution. And that to the American Revolution was an important turning point in the history of the modern world, that it, it, it overthrew monarchy, it established, you know, it overthrew uh, all sorts of ways of organizing political and social life that were important to set in motion this, the debate over slavery in the United States. And they feel the same way about the American Civil War, right? And that it was the most, the largest, most significant social revolution in American history, among other things, right? And that the tendency, to erase the American Revolution and erase the consequences of slavery, to say there was this brief fleeting moment of Reconstruction, then everything went back to slavery again, stuff like that, and 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 th- that's what they're upset about. That that there is no change over time. There's no you know, and for them, you know, as, as Marxists, you know, there has to be a bourgeois revolution before there's a socialist revolution, and if you erase the bourgeois revolutions, we're never going to have a socialist revolution. <laughs> things like that. So it's, it's, you know, in a sense that, right, you could frame it differently because I said this in the closing pages of one of my books uh, on emancipation, you know, you you win the struggle, this this decades-long struggle, 88-year-long struggle to get slavery abolished. And it doesn't mean conflict goes away, it just shifts the terms of the conflict. All of a sudden, there are debates over civil rights for freed people, over voting rights for freed people over economic justice for free people, things like that. Things that you would never have that kind of debate over slavery because that's not, what, that's not the way you debate slavery. You debate slavery on the legitimacy or illegitimacy of property rights in human beings. Once that's gone, the, all the terms of debate over conflict change and the conflict resumes in a completely different set of material circumstances and the completely different terms of debate. Right? And that's what they're objecting to, the, the Worldwide Socialist people, I think. you know, if Things do change. And if you don't understand how they change and why they change, you're not going to understand where we are right now. Right, So why did a generation ago the wealth gap suddenly become so much more severe? Why did middle class and working class wages stagnate starting around 1970, 80? Right? Why did mass incarceration start around 1980, 1990? things like that. These are, these are recent developments that require that they be put in the context of what, what would they say, neoliberal ascendancy or something like that. They'll have very specific explanations for why these things arose at specific moments in the recent history of the United States. And to emphasize continuous lines of, you know, through lines that go all the way back to slavery, is to misdiagnose the problems we're facing right now. That's that's what I think they're interested in. That's what I'm interested in as well. You know, as someone who again is not is the last person on earth to say we should not be studying slavery and not and we should not see the significance of slavery and racism in American history, but that we do it correctly and we do it with some sense of historicity. You know. Rather
0: than, than changeless, timeless ideas. Well, Jim, thank you very much. This has been a really, really fascinating, informative discussion. We've missed, we failed to cover about half the things I sent you in the email, and I'm hoping that at <laughs> some point you'll come back so we can talk about Frederick Douglass. We can talk about identity yeah. politics, history, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I want to thank you for Steve. We had to hop onto another call, but uh, again, thanks for your okay. time and stay safe. Sure. Thank you.